Well, I've blocked the door, so we're not going to have a BBC moment. <laughs> and we're like, hey, we're the Troublesome Terps. This is a mic in your face. What should I tell them? So usually my job on the show is making sure that, I, that we fill the outtakes. <laughs> yeah, no, I like the outtakes. They're great. Very good. That's great. I didn't do any deep preparation because I think it probably flows a little better if I just kind of make it up as I go. But uh... you know how this works. <laughs> <laughs> You've come to the right place. <laughs> yeah. See, I get in trouble for cracking those kind of jokes. When I do my Slatercom presentation, I always prepare the speaker notes. I never use them. My favourite story is I was interpreting an under-20 rugby international in Scotland who were being beaten 69-19 by France. And I said to some of the analysts in the VIP room, look, please, I don't want Scotland to lose any more points. And they said, what, is it embarrassment? I said, no, it's just French numbers over 70 are really hard. Welcome to Troublesome Terps, the podcast about things that keep interpreters up at night. On today's show, we're talking headlines and trends. But before we get there, it's time to once again introduce the other members of our troublesome trio. First off, our favorite Lederhosen Vera, it's Alexander Gansmeier. Good evening. <laughs> Jesus Christ, that was, that was, uh, I like that. Yeah. Uh, I always try to crack you up, you know, just. Yeah, it's not that hard. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> I'm a good no. audience, I think, for, for being cracked up. But it's good to see all those talking heads back again in action. Absolutely. And also with us again is a man who apparently knows exactly what Scotsmen wear under their kilts. Jonathan Downey, do you care to go into any more detail or would you rather not? I'm not going to tell anyone. So the answer to that is exactly the same as the answer to the question, what do interpreters do when they can't find the word? We're not allowed to tell anyone. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So secrets that have to be kept secret. That's true. Uh, my name is Alexander Drexel, but our guest today will almost certainly be familiar to your inbox or web browser. He, or rather his company, has become to the translation industry what Bloomberg is to finance. Welcome to the co-founder and managing director of Slater, Florian Fass. Good evening. How are you? Hey, I'm good. How are you? Thanks uh, so much for having me here, Alexander. Yeah, it's great to to have you on this show, and we've been working on this um, and preparing this for a while. So it's great that it's that it's finally happening. Um, and um, before we get into the headlines and trends, as we said earlier, we were wondering a little bit about your professional background, Florian. So maybe you can give us just a quick uh, summary of what you've been doing before you started Slater, basically. Before I started Slater, yeah, I've, I've done a few things. So um, uh, I actually started out uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a job that's really not related to what I'm doing right now. I was, a, I was an electrician. I did one of those Swiss uh, apprenticeships, you know, when you start uh, right after, I don't know what you would call maybe high school or college in, in America uh, or, or the UK, uh, and you, you start at 16. So I did a four-year apprenticeship as an electrician. Um, and then, uh, you know, we graduate uh, this this uh, program here. And then I went to, uh, you know, worked a little bit on construction sites and then went traveling a lot. Uh, and during those travels, I kind of discovered that I like uh, working or interacting with languages, um, and then I, uh, you know, for through a, some different routes, ended up in a in a translation and interpreting program in uh, at the Zurich University of Applied Sciences in in in, in Zurich here, 
and I uh, did uh, Spanish and English as second language, and my native language is German. So I, I did that for four years. And part of the studies was I went to London for a year and did a, an MA in translation at the University of Westminster. Uh, so, so that's what kind of got me into translation. I did skip the interpreting part. I'm really impressed by what you guys are doing. Uh, it blows my mind uh, how you can actually do uh, simultaneous interpreting. So the simultaneous interpreting part would have added two years to my studies. And I, A, I don't think I would have been capable of doing it. Uh, and, you know, actually, that's A. That's all there is. <laughs> it really, yeah, it's, it's, it's intense. I, I think we trained it a couple of times, and I, I think I lost I don't know what you call this in interpreting language, but I, I couldn't follow after like 20 seconds, maybe 10 mm -hmm. seconds. Um, so, and then I had a pretty fortunate break. So I applied with a translation company here as a translator in Zurich. And then they were like, well, you know, we don't have a job for you in, in Zurich, but why don't you go to Singapore? And I'm like, well, that sounds great. So, so basically they sent me to Singapore to do some overnight translation for uh, a couple of major Swiss banking clients. And I, uh, you know, that, that was a great break. I, I started working there as a translator, did that for about a year or two, and then quite quickly uh, started helping on the business development side uh, of that company because it was it was very exciting, right? I mean, I like translation, but actually, if you see how the business um, get like grows and at the time it grew really fast, so I really helped out on the operations side initially, hiring translator, qualifying freelancers, etc. Uh, and then uh, in 2009, I moved to Hong Kong, uh, became the general manager of that office. And then that was heavy on sales. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. you did have to do a bit of management, but mostly it was just, you know, growing the business, going out and selling, which is quite a change when you were a translator. You know, you go right. out there. And oh, I reckon, yeah. <laughs> clients, right? Initially, like, you know, as a translator, you have to be detail obsessed and very kind of structured. And as a, as a salesperson, in a sense, you have to be obviously a lot more outgoing and and, uh, and pushy with people, right? Sure. So, <laughs> assertive, I think, is the word. Yeah, yeah. assertive. You know, well it, but it does help, I guess. What helped was that I was able, that I knew what I was selling. You know, it was the kind of, it adds a little bit of legitimacy to your pitch. Uh, which was atrocious, I guess, in the beginning. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, practice uh, makes learned, perfect, right? Yeah, I learned on the job. And then um, I, I was able to uh, take over responsibility for the entire region, like the Asia region. Um, we were about 60 people at the time, and I moved to uh, Shanghai, mainland China. That was a great experience working there for three years. Um, and yeah, then I, you know, after eight, nine years in Asia, it was time to either really settle down in that part of the world or move back to uh, to Switzerland, where I am originally from. And I decided uh, to get my wife and we had a, uh, our first, uh, you know, son was born in China. We decided to move back to, to Zurich. And <clears throat> I didn't want to, uh, maybe we'll get into this later a little bit, but uh, I didn't really want to continue being on the translation company side. So I was looking for, you know, what could be next and also maybe starting my own business. So that's when, when Slater came in, but maybe you can touch upon that later. So that's kind of in a nutshell, what got me here. Yeah, that, there was a lot of stuff in there. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned the that you were an electrician because sure. just the last episode, actually, Jonathan shared a, a horror story from his own house. Where I don't know <laughs> if we want to get into this, but maybe we, you can you can talk about this bilaterally. But I think you were going to say something anyway, Jonathan. To go ahead. Yeah, I basically saved my family from being electrocuted through a plug failure, which was lovely. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that I noticed when you're talking about your career is that there's traditionally what is uncharitably called the starving artist syndrome amongst translators which is you know they want to do the job hmm. but a lot of them if you say to them you're a business person they look at you oddly and i think interpreters 
we don't seem to have as much of that, but there's still this interpreting thing of I'll let someone else deal with the sales side. Mm. Um, how did you find that your fellow translators kind of dealt with you or treated you when they realized, oh, hold on, he's gone from being a translator to a salesperson where you kind of sent away to Coventry or? <laughs> no, I think it was, I mean, at the time there were a lot of internal translators as well in that company and they had a fair amount of contact also with, with end clients. I, I didn't think it was, there was a lot of pushback or anything. I think they, they liked it. I mean, few would go into a full on sales role, I guess, right? That's maybe a somewhat unusual mm. transition, mm. but you know, often we actually also pulled translators into meetings because it added that much legitimacy or just credibility to your meeting, right? I mean, it's not just some anonymous person that does the translation, but it's actually you know a human being and an expert that that he can present to a client. So no, there was no no pushback or anything like that, and you know. I think a lot of the freelancers are extremely entrepreneurial. I mean, they run their own, you know, one, two, three man shops. So um, I think a lot of translators have a fairly entrepreneurial mindset, actually. I think that's been changing for a, for a while already, and and it's it's probably what you said, Jonathan, is probably similar with interpreters, that uh, some freelance interpreters don't really enjoy the whole business and slash finance side of the of the job. I know I didn't, <laughs> so I, I'm kind of <laughs> glad to be in the position that that I'm in. Yeah. But I guess it's also gotten a little easier, right? With all those tools now. I mean, 10 yes. years ago, I wouldn't have wanted, I mean, you know, just the invoicing and all of that, it was horrendous. I mean, I, I think right now it's a lot easier with all those web tools. I mean, see that's that. true. Yeah. There's, and there's, I think there's also a lot of help out there. So there's lots of training that you can get both right. within yeah. our industry, but also from the outside or just online simply. Sure. I, I think also I was, I remember chatting to some interpreters in one of the traditional markets. I don't want to, to name which. And their view was, you know, that the, when they had graduated, the idea was you settle down, you fit into the system that stayed in, and so long as people like you, work comes. Mm. And I was talking to one interpreter relatively recently who said, well, you know, that system still exists and still runs in some of the established markets. But there's a realization amongst the younger interpreters that everyone in the so-called weaker markets is having to learn to be a business. Mm. And there's this feeling of, are we missing out? You know, it's nice that you can get work to come. But if you fall out with a key person or if suddenly something goes wrong, there's no safety net. And there's, there's this, I know there's a discussion among some interpreters of, do we all need to become business people? And I think it's, it's an interesting discussion that I think is happening in the industries. Even the people in the established markets are beginning to say, do we need to do this business thing as well? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I particularly think for you, Florian, it's a pretty interesting transition because you kind of were thrown into the deep end, weren't you? I mean, they sent you basically to, to Asia to work as a translator, and then all of a sudden you turned out to be this like sales pitch guy who had to go out and like talk to the clients like face-to-face. -face. So I think that transition is, is particularly interesting. I mean, I get that every translator and every interpreter in a way is their own business and has like a, a certain business mindset, but... Um, you know, I don't know, maybe it was also just the uh, 2006, 7, 8 was crazy in Singapore or in Asia in general. I mean, it was oh, boom. I, reckon, yeah. I mean, it was booming everywhere, but there it was, mm -hmm. it, it was just extreme, right? So there was a lot of gung-ho and, and uh, business was just, you know, coming in and we, we just started out there with the company. It was right. a pretty strategic bet for the company that put a lot of resources behind it. So it was a lot of excitement. So I kind of felt like, hey, I want to be part of this. And, and, and also they actually needed the help because, you know, 
you don't find Chinese translators, just they don't fall off trees. Like you need to meet them, vet <laughs> them. Uh, uh, also, of course, Japanese and Korean and all the other Asian languages we sourced at the time. So it was it was kind of needed, the help. And then the client thing kind of came naturally. My... <laughs> Uh, it was actually also a question of uh, of resources that the, the person who headed the, the the whole Asia at the time, uh, he basically told me, man, you can't stay in Singapore, you and me, like you just need to go sell in, in Hong Kong, like just, you know, you need the help. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, he kind of came in at the deep end, but it was great. It was great. Um, it's uh, And again, it really helps selling something, you know. I think I would have had trouble selling insurance or cars, but this was uh, this was quite natural, right? I, I sold insurance for seven months. <laughs> you did. Selling interpreting oh, yeah. is so much easier. Yeah. I, I sold accidental death insurance. Oh my god! Get out! And and the first group of people that we tried to sell accidental death insurance to were pregnant women. Yeah. Mm. And can you imagine, like, like dialing the computer would dial these people, and you would go, if you were to die in a bus, train, ship, or plane, and you'd like almost hear the woman rubbing her belly over the phone, going, "You what?" <laughs> oh, that's oh wow! Yeah, that's the, the really last time, the 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 wrong time to try and sell something to someone. Yeah. Uh, that's a tough one. <laughs> yep. Yeah, but yeah, you conducted most of that business in all in English, or did did you have to pick up any Chinese or I don't know? No, so Singapore and Hong Kong work very well in uh, in English. Mm. Uh, Singapore, especially, obviously, is, is basically you know English speaking country. Uh, Hong Kong, obviously, if you knew the secret Cantonese handshake, that would help. But uh, you oh, know, wow. if, you're, if you're if you're a Cantonese fluent in Cantonese, fluent in Mandarin, fluent in English, you you you, you rule Hong Kong on the sales side. So, wow. uh, so you can do a lot in English. Uh, mainland China was a lot was was harder. Uh, there actually relied a lot more on, uh, on obviously my, my my local sales colleagues, and you know there I I also had the whole team, so I did a little less of direct sales. Um, yeah, I mean, so I picked up some Mandarin, but not fluent at all. I mean, it's right. like you do day-to-day business. I did my morning lessons, but my God, is that's a difficult language, frankly. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. And did you experience any kind of culture shock, both when you got there and then when you got back maybe to Switzerland? So when I got there, well, Singapore, I mean, I lived abroad before moving to Singapore quite often. So I didn't have a particular culture. I had a weather shock, frankly. I mean, the, the weather is just crazy when you move from, uh, from like, in, in you know Europe or like a, in, in a sense a more moderate uh, climate to to the tropics it's like t- 365 days it's just 30 degrees and you know it's super Very different humid. from Switzerland so, yeah, yeah so you you'd get sick a lot in the beginning because of the aircon yeah. um, and then uh, but then you you really get used to it. then as I transitioned up to 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 China like Hong Kong and then mainland China that was relatively there was no shock because like Singapore kind of prepares you for Hong Kong, Hong Kong prepares you for Shanghai. So um, it, it was okay. Coming back was odd in a sense, because it's so empty here. Like you wouldn't believe once you get used to China <laughs> and then you move here, there's yeah. no people. And some like, people say Switzerland is densely populated, but it's, there's it's no, no comparison. You cannot, there's no one. Even like, yeah. even, you know, even London would feel empty, frankly. It's just like <laughs> wow. China is so intense. And then you come back, it's like, whoa, where is everyone? Yeah, <laughs> uh, that was a bit of not a shock, but it was kind of weird in the first few months. Yeah, yeah, and oh. then yeah, you, you indicated that earlier when you sort of described your your path, your professional path, that you then you you basically wanted you were thinking about what's next after working for this agency or or, or LSP. I'm just wondering how how that 
how you made that step and and came up with the idea for Slato, if that was more of a, a team thing, maybe. So basically, I attended a bunch of events when I was uh, selling, like I was, uh, you know, looking, my main markets were like life sciences, finance, legal. And so I was, I was going to a ton of industry events. And I, um, I also, we advertised in like industry publications, not translation publications, but like life sciences, legal publications and websites. And then I was looking for something similar in the translation space, like something that was like day to day and I didn't find it. Um, mm. And I was like, well, that, that seems to be some, there seems to be a niche here, right? Business content for this particular industry, which people are telling us. And now we're telling people that it's a very large, it's a multi-billion dollar industry, right? Yeah. So, um, so I, I talked to um, somebody who I used to be a client of. He was the managing director for Asia Legal Business, and we uh, we placed ads in their in their magazine. And I'm like, hey, what do you think? I mean, and he was like, whoa, this is a forty billion dollar industry that doesn't have a day to day kind of business media publication. Hmm. Um, and yeah, then we partnered up. His name is Andrew Smart. At the time, he lived in Singapore. Now he lives in in Bangkok, and uh, he, you know. Together, we kind of came up with the idea, the structure of the website. And then it was a great time for me to also um, leave the company. The company was called CLS. We sold it to Lionbridge, which is basically one of the biggest oh, um, yeah. uh, the biggest uh, LSPs in the world. And it was a great time to, you know, basically, I moved back from Asia. We we sold the company to, to Lionbridge. So it was a great time to, you know, do something new. And frankly, one of the reasons why I also wanted to do start my own businesses because once you experience the speed of business and the hustling in China, like you, you're going to have a hard time going back to a corporate role in a Western setting, like a big corporate role, right? So it's all actually, the structures and yeah, and just yeah. the momentum. It's like, it's, it's very nice to keep that momentum and you can keep it if you're doing something like if you start your own business, cause that just, there's pretty demanding. It, there's a lot of curveball thrown at you. So, um, so that, that helped. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm wondering, how how did you start out? I mean, how did that look practical? Was it just a one man show in the beginning, and just that you set up a blog? Or I mean, what what? How did that start? Or did you did you get in sort of big from the beginning on? No, well, big in the sense that like it's, we didn't hire a bunch of people. I mean, we hired uh, somebody who's still with us now, Gino. He, he he's based in Manila. He was our first writer. Uh, Andrew, you know, w- was helping there as well, obviously. And 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 then we just started. I mean, we took us about half a year to get the website kind of coded and 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 prepped and kind of the framework and then we just started i mean at some point you're going to push the trigger and you say yeah. now it's live let's find some stories right and yeah. uh, and then we started and then like we did add a few pieces obviously since then and, and we keep adding new services we started conferencing you know we do some advisory work but really the the core at the beginning was the website and the news coverage Mm. And there was a lot of, you know, learning, obviously, we had to understand some of the the nuances as well, and actually understand the business. This business is very complex. Uh, Also, you're you're part of the business. I mean, the interpreting space was somewhat new to me. I had some, we did send a few interpreters here or there, but it was not something I was particularly familiar with. And um, I mean, how how did you how did all the people get together in, in the beginning? So you knew Andrew, I, I think, from another I knew role. Andrew, and, yeah. yeah. So Andrew, I knew Andrew, and Andrew uh, knew uh, so had some contacts in in Manila. Andrew's been in Asia for thirty, almost twenty five years, maybe twenty five plus years. <clears throat> so we knew that we could hire great writers in the Philippines. So we just started the three of us, and um, and yeah, that that's how it started. Three people. So, <laughs> yeah. so did did you go for people who had? a content writing background or did you specifically look for kind of people with a business journalism background? Because those two 
training skills, if you like, have very different approaches to writing. Yeah, so <laughs> hiring great writers is the hardest thing. And then hiring people who have a, a passion for this industry is even harder. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, you think uh, it goes hand in hand, but apparently it doesn't. <laughs> no, it, yeah, you'd, you'd think so, right? Uh, no, look, we, I think we even put out an ad. And then, you know, he responded. He was, uh, Gina at the time, he, was, he had the, was the best fit. And then we, you know, really got him up to speed in the industry. And now he's, he's, he's quite techy. So now he's our writer who does all the machine translation and kind of AI and neural and natural language processing coverage. So mm. he's that guy now. Who's doing all of that? I mean, that, that's interesting. It's one of the things that I'd noticed about Slater's coverage is that you're really doing well at owning the the coverage of, of MT and the tech side of the business. Yeah. I, I was amazed at the way that you've managed to get what is, I mean, I had to read far too much MT literature for my than was good for me for the, the book that I'm writing just now. And to see Slater take that stuff and not just make it understandable, but show how it's relevant without fawning is actually quite I'm, I'm impressed with how well you've done with that um it's like your writers have been trained you know you're not just being read by the lsps you're being read by the translators and interpreters as well and it's striking how do you um teach your writers to strike that balance between you know hey this here's this great discovery without it turning into you know fawning sensationalism or yeah sensational yeah, no. coverage yeah, so A, the kind of man versus machine debate gets old really fast, right? Oh, I mean, yes. I was probably excited about it for like a week. And then <laughs> like, well, I'm repeating myself here. Like, mm. and, right. then, and then obviously, totally agree. I mean, as a former translator, I look at all these new tools and I, I see, well, we're not there yet and we're, it's going to take a while. And okay, now it's getting a lot better in certain language combinations and text types. So it's, I guess, that experience that, I, that I'm um, sharing with, with the writers as well. Um, and there's so much, I mean, there's so much PR out there and our job often is to just cut through the PR and, and mm. try to get to the heart right. of the actual story. And, um, and that, that's pretty hard. I can tell you, I mean, it's, uh, cause it's always easier just to rewrite the press release, but, uh, as we discussed before we went live, but it's, uh, this is kind of, I think this is our job to cut through that. And, and we often also rely on like third party experts. Uh, we just did a piece on something that Google launched and frankly, it was beyond our kind of technical expertise to understand whether that's a big deal or not. So we'd reach out and they give us feedback and then we put it in an article. So that's the kind of the journalistic part of it as well. Maybe just just wanted to go back real quick to the to the press release and, and, and editorial coverage, because we did talk about this before the show. And I think it's quite interesting, probably for the audience as well, um, because I don't know if people notice that, but um, you have a fairly clear distinction on the site between press releases and editorial articles so that it's a different format so it, it really it, even at first glance you see okay this is a press release and this as you, yeah maybe you can just quickly explain that, that that was a deliberate decision of yours yeah and i totally ripped this off coindesk a bitcoin site uh oh. <laughs> that was great because they also had a different font it looked like a typewriter font and i'm like yeah. that's that's copied in <laughs> um and and so uh i'm getting a lot of inspiration from that site hmm. no no and it does it actually it helps because you know the press releases there's a lot of valuable information also in those press releases but it's just not something that you necessarily want to cover editorially i mean if somebody opens an office in a, in a certain in a certain country it, it a lot of people might be interested in that but it's not something we want to write about editorially as a big deal right or somebody gets an iso accreditation or, or things like that <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. 
these press releases, they're great. I mean, A, we're, we do like one or two a day now, and uh, it's kind of become almost like um, like a source of record for, for, for the industry. A lot of people are using it. Mm. Obviously, it's also generating some revenue for us, which is great. Uh, and we also have sponsor content, which is then kind of broader. We help the company frame the story. And, we, you know, we do clearly flag it as sponsor content, but that would live like in the main news feed. Uh, but we don't do too many of them. I mean, I guess it's still like, one every 20th article would be sponsored or maybe one every 30th. But mm. Yeah, I, I was going to say, it was a question that we we're going to come to later, but I think it's ideal to come to now. In our sector, I'm going to use sector because I have so many colleagues who hate the word industry. Um, it, it, in our sector, the LSPs and the tech companies are doing very well at making the headlines. Mm. Um, I saw one recently with... Um, doctors trying to use machine translation for patient discharge forms and that got, went straight to Reuters and I thought mm, this is interesting. Um, how would you advise those who don't have a huge budget, especially freelancers who think actually there's something more than just the LSPs making the news, we want you know the translation and interpreting that's making a difference to make the news as well. How would you advise them to go about earning their own headlines? Depends where, where would they earn the headlines? Well, either either with you or with the two. <laughs> but this is the question as well, actually, because yeah. I've noticed that it's, I, I'm finding it easier to earn headlines or at least earn articles in the kind of places my clients would read than in our own kind of general industry press, apart from the magazines that I write for regularly. Um, how if if I'd, an interpreter had said, you know, does this amazing thing that's happened? How would you classify, okay, this is a, a story that we'll cover editorially, this is a press release, and what steps would you advise they go through to try and use Slater to, to get their news out as well? So this is two things. First, let me go back. What you said was very interesting. You said talking to the clients in their own industry. So, I mean, if you could, I mean, if you have a, a blog or uh, I don't know, you tweet regularly, but if you can talk to the clients, how your service or, you know, your translations or your interpreting is relevant in their particular sector, that's very helpful. Like for me, like, for example, I was in life sciences or, or finance, right? I would explain to these people, hey, you know, you, how the trend, how trend, good translation really helps you meet your maybe regulatory goals or helps avoid risks rather on the regulatory side or maybe expand your market if you're on the marketing side. So if you talk, if you if you want to talk to your clients, uh, there you, you have to be relevant to their sector, not talk too much about the translation, the profession, or the details there. Uh, if the, the translators want to make headlines, I mean, I, I, we we do cover it. We just don't cover it all like that often i guess i mean it's it's i think we we probably every you know 10 or 15 articles there's something from from the translator side that we cover i mean when there's yeah i mean how did they pitch me i mean send me something that we think is interesting right i mean maybe you 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 started using a, a certain tool and you found your productivity went up a lot or or you're frustrated with something or you want to share how, you know, agencies are or are not paying, you know, things like that. We're always open to, um, to people pitching stories to us, right? I was just going to ask, yeah, basically, how do you find stories? Do you get a lot of pitches? Do you go out? Um, do you have kind of a method for that or yeah it's a mix so basically we, we've we've developed over the past three years uh, a, a pretty big funnel of just like looking at the internet right i mean there's a lot of stuff going on and mm. you can pick up on tweets or blogs or right. 
um, or we, we track very closely all the publicly listed companies and you can get a lot of information from like those obscure filings they do. So that's for the financial part. So we pre- we're putting out a pretty big net. Uh, and then yes, uh, people are, are pitching stories or they're, they're tipping us off to stories. And then, you know, sometimes you have to actually be creative and, and, and think about what we could do and, you know, mm. write a report or come up with the new, like analyze things or maybe do a survey even. That's what we're probably going to do more going forward. So really generating our own news, which is which is the hardest, right? You can't, I mean, I guess with our means, we couldn't do a, like one of those stories a day. That's a little harder. So we call it quick wins when something just comes in, right? When a publicly listed company announces results, boom, we're all over it. And we can publish a story in two hours. Those are those are the, hmm. the thankful uh, stories. Low-hanging fruit. <laughs> yeah, the low-hanging fruits. That's a better analogy. <laughs> yeah. Quick wins, I like it. Now, I was actually just going to ask you, like, because I think it's very interesting to discuss if, I mean, you said that you also, every 15th or 20th article is like by a translator, but then if the business results are being announced, like you also publish those, obviously, and you dissect them. So who do you think is like your primary target audience of the website in general? Is it the LSPs? Is it businesses out there, like in the legal space, in life sciences and wherever? Or is it like the freelancers? Or is it just a healthy mix of the three? I hope it's a healthy mix. I think it's probably slightly geared towards kind of the senior management of all those big companies and mm. hopefully also the client side, uh, especially if they have big budgets and they really care what's going on in the industry as a whole. But we really try to make it accessible to everybody. Um, I, I understand it's a little heavy on the business side, on the financials and on the technology. I understand that it's also fo- uh, kind of a result of our um, of just the way we have to um, curate the content and what what makes headlines and what doesn't make headlines in a sense, um, but it should be accessible to everybody. I mean, you know, by all it's it's free most of it, and uh, you can just look at the headlines. And we try to write it as Jonathan pointed out before, like in a way that's accessible. So we try to not go too deep into the rabbit hole, um, even if it's very tempting sometimes because you can just <laughs> copy paste some of what these people are saying. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, it's particularly the whole business and finance side that was so underserved before. So that's kind of the, right. the gap that you're filling, right? So yeah, that's the not? gap that we filled. Of course, that that yeah. that was the gap. And I mean, there is a, so many amazing translator blogs or translator publications. You have ATA putting out a ton of very useful uh, content. You know, you have Multilingual Magazine. Now you have a, a new uh, consulting firms as well. So yeah, we do cover the business side that was totally underserved before because that was kind of where I saw an opening. I'm like. I don't see any of this in this space. Like I see all this other content, but not this, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the core. But then obviously if we only kind of dissect financial reports, then A, I'm getting bored and, and the readers <laughs> also get bored. But I still think that it's a very valuable perspective for you to take because, as Jonathan mentioned, a lot of people in our in our industry. Sorry, not our industry. What, what do we call it in sector. our sector? Space. Yeah, we, call, we call it language industry. I wanted to short. Right, yeah. I started out calling it the language services industry. I'm like, can can we just cut the services? It's a yeah. language industry. Right. Can we just make it, Jonathan? Can we just coin that and just like keep using it now? Either way, um, where is I going? Right. So as Jonathan was mentioning in the in the language industry, like a lot of people will see themselves as sort of like the starving artists, whether or not they're starving is up for debate. But I think a lot of the people will see themselves as like wordsmiths and like artists of the spoken or written word. And I think a lot of the times they don't necessarily lose track or lose sight of the business elements, but I think it's very good for you to hone in specifically on these business elements and, and kind of dissect the financial reports, as you've mentioned, because I think it's, 
it's part of what we do, not only literally translating these types of things or interpreting at these sorts of events, but this is kind of what, what we need to do in our own business, but we also need to be aware of the other businesses that are working in the same industry as we do. Those are so huge I think it's really, businesses, right? right? Those are big businesses and they're fast growing. I mean, we just published uh, our... Um, you know, the Slater uh, uh, language uh, uh, service provider index. And I mean, like, if you look at the results, all of these, most of these companies are growing, like some, many by double digits. This is mm -hmm. a huge industry. It's getting bigger. It's super professional. Um, and, you know, there's so much interest from investors. I mean, I talk to investors literally every week. They, they, they come and they ask, hey, you know, is this a sector we should be investing in and so on and so forth. It's, it's, it's a big, it's an interesting sector. So it's, it's very valuable if you take, obviously, the linguist perspective. And these people have to be super passionate about what they do day to day. But there's this whole industry element that, that makes sure that clients that need millions of words translated professionally actually get it done, mm. right? And there's yeah. this whole ecosystem of technology and project managers and salespeople and what have you, like corporate infrastructure around it that enables this. So, um, right, yeah. And I think that's the thing. So I've I've noticed a couple. I've noticed since I started going to events that my potential clients would go to that when you learn the trends in a sector, you can actually make smarter decisions. Yeah. Um, and I think that's not just for the the big companies. Um, the, the freelancers as well, you can actually look at whatever sector you're in and go, well, you know, I think in trans in translation, not so much in interpreting, but in translation, they can choose, do I serve this million word to a month market or do I look at serving, you know, the clients who want a few less? What are you seeing as are the big industry trends that are driving decision making? It, it, well, industry trends depends what you're looking at. In terms of the, um, I think a lot of the, I think the machine, let me start with the machine translation component. And again, apologies if I talk a lot about translation and maybe not so much about interpreting. I think we maybe want to talk about this. We'll get to that. We'll get there. I'm, yeah, I'm just kind of the translation market is where I'm at sure. home, right? Um, so there, I think the, the technology is really beginning to impact or it has begun to impact at least for the past uh, you know, 12, 18 months. Uh, you know, all those um, in many languages, machine translation has gotten a lot better. There's a lot of mo more post editing, what they call going on mm. or tools that now enable you to work with this. So the speed is picking up like you're moving from a world where 250 words, 300 words an hour were kind of the, the, the standard for like normal, maybe 400 if you're a little faster. Now we're moving towards six, 700 and, and then it gets controversial. Can you do a thousand words? Can you do 1500 words? Right? Yeah. Uh, that's where like all the Twitter arguments break out. Uh, <laughs> Indeed. But, so that, love, that love. is that is a big trend we're seeing. Uh, there's also, um, I think all of these platforms uh, are now enabling the client to, if they have some internal project management capabilities, it's easier to source translations directly from the linguists, right? Mm. Which it was a little harder to do that maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you kind of needed the, the middleman. Now technologies have become very um, um, sophisticated. So if you're willing to, as, as a client, as a big buyer, if you're willing to actually invest in, a, in internal project managers, you can run a lot of that direct, right? And that's what I think uh, there's a there's a certain um, group of linguists that strongly prefers working directly for clients and not working for what the, kind of the agencies as they see. Right? Yeah, um, <laughs> the bad agencies. And, yeah, the bad agencies. Uh, you know, I, I think they're getting probably a worse rep than they should. I mean, I think uh, there's also a vocal minority of, of translators that that keep kind of you know hitting those evil agencies, but I, I 
I think it's it's a small minority. I think most there, there's there's a lot of positive collaborations between those agencies as well. Mm-hmm. So, the, the, Jonathan, back to your question. I think yeah, one trend tech, t- definitely technology, and then another one uh, some of the systems that you can go direct, and then there's all kinds of other things that are, that's going on. Also, these agencies are getting bigger and bigger. Um, you know, I don't really know what impact that has on the day to day for for the linguists, but uh, it's definitely a trend on the corporate side. I mean, it's interesting because I've been thinking about interpreting trends and just talking to people, realizing that I don't think maybe the, the two Alexes will disagree with me on this. I don't think there are any global interpreting trends. You know, there's a general, you know, let's look at technology in the booth or whatever. But, you know, what's happening in the UK compared to what's happening in Germany mm. compared to what's happening in Paris are three completely different things. Um, and it's it's this favorite word of the, the industry watchers of fragmentation. It's so in, interpreting so fragmented that I, I think it would be challenging to find the trend that is universally applicable. <laughs> I don't know if the Alexes are going to disagree with me on that. I don't know. Do you agree? I think, I mean, like what, what I'm seeing is obviously the whole remote, uh, simultaneous, like, you know, with the app and all of that. That's something that wasn't there five years ago. Now it is there. And I think it's probably mostly generating new markets. Hmm. Because, I mean, I can just speak from personal experience. Like we did Slatercon Tokyo last year. And uh, we actually did, I mean, I hosted a panel and I spoke English and the rest of the panelists, except one spoke Japanese. And I was able to actually hold a discussion with, you know, interpreters sitting in, in California. So it, it worked. Mm-hmm. Like, was it perfect? I guess not, but it, 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 it worked. And this was something that five years ago would simply not have been possible. Plus, I would not have been able, just from a financial viewpoint actually invest in on-site interpreters mm-hmm. yeah. so i think that that's something i see it creates a market where there was none before mm-hmm. uh, that's maybe one of the i think broader trends that you could say might apply globally um but yeah i mean fragmented this this entire market is still incredibly fragmented that's mm-hmm. why you have like ten thousand agencies and i don't yeah. know how many thousand freelancers that would have been my reply as well, because I think it really depends on what kind of subsector you look at. So is it public service? Is it, is it you know, the courts, police, medical, conference? Um, so there's fragmentation there across these different sectors. And then you have different developments in medical in Germany, for example, compared to the US. So, yeah, it's kind of all over the place, which... I don't know if that makes it more interesting or more scary for a publication to cover. <laughs> so, oh, it's scary. I tell yeah. you, it's so scary. And then in, in the US, like you, you fall down this giant language access rabbit hole. Uh, yeah. Because they have these language access rules. I think Clinton started it. So, you know, I think mm-hmm. we interact with the government or something that's government funded. Yeah. Uh, and now I'm out of my depth already. But <laughs> <laughs> you're selling it really well. It generates a huge market for interpretation. And that's why you have. To giant interpreting companies like uh, you know language line syracom over there that we don't have in in in, in europe um, yeah here it's still a lot more fragmented. yeah but i also think in the united states it's a very interesting situation in the market in that you really have two very prevalent languages that does need a lot of going back and forth in between you know like with spanish and and a lot of you know immigration is coming from latin america and i think that is a very focused approach that they have for their language market which in europe obviously you don't have and i guess also in asia you don't really see it like that um, no you don't have this at all in asia uh, yeah yeah and it is interesting i think in mainland europe certainly the big conference cities tend to, tend to be dominated by the international organizations who do things in the uk outside of london they, they don't really exist so like the vast, vast majority of my work has been for private clients. 
via agencies or or directly. And even there, you know, probably about a third of it has been international organization related. The rest has just been, here's this thing we want to do. Um, or the Scottish government saying, here's this event we're doing. And I think this is the interesting thing that I've not, I've only ever had one even possible remote interpreting assignment, but I have had assignments where the clients have gone, hold on a minute, the room's too small. Let's set up a video link. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, okay, I'm not sure if that's a trend or if that's just a, a client going, oh, we forgot about something important. What was that again? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yep. But I mean, since we talked about regions and, and geographical areas, I'm wondering now maybe more on your field of expertise or from your perspective, do you see sort of trends that are different or things that emerge in one region but never really show up in another one? Is there something that, that's kind of interesting that you've noticed? On the translation side or interpreting or both? What uh, Both, I guess, or whatever you feel comfortable, you know, talking about, I guess. Um that, I think that's the interesting part that it's pretty global, actually. I think is it's, it? yeah. yeah, I I mean, Asia is a little different because just some of the countries are maybe, you know, not a little less developed or in a different stage of the of, of the development curve, as it were, right? So you just have fewer, I mean, there's there's less business in a place like Indonesia. Like, at, I mean, they have, in a sense, different problems than perfect translation, um, I guess, at, at, on a scale. I mean, there's, there's don't get me wrong, there's there's a lot of trans, good translation companies there, but it's just, it's less sizable as a market. But in, in the mature markets like Europe and and, um, and 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 the U.S., I think it's it's fairly it's fairly similar. Uh, on the interpreting side, I think the U.S. is a standout with all the what they call OPI over the phone. Mm. Uh, I think that that is that is different. Uh, maybe Scandinavia is in a sense more centralized when it comes to uh, to interpreting for uh for new arrivals like immigrants in the country uh, i think for example in switzerland there is no company providing like that service to the government i think the U uk and scandinavia is pretty centralized right framework contracts everything mm -hmm. sourced by one vendor or two vendors switzerland germany is just like I, individuals or smaller companies serving those that that market um but yeah on the translation side very much uh in terms of development and, and and maturity i think they're fairly fairly aligned interpreting is yeah even more is, is more fragmented fragmented and messy i guess <laughs> <laughs> yeah let's see i mean like with all those new apps i mean i, I would love to hear your perspective where you, where you see this going i mean again i think it's actually generating a new market and maybe you know certain international organizations if they want to cut costs maybe they go remote but uh i haven't seen that on mass yet um, do you think this is a massive trend and it's going to change in the next two years or is it still like far future? And I, I know you've spoken about this before. I actually listened to your podcast on that before. But Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, I actually think it's just a big boogeyman at the moment just because it's, it's, it's no, I think it's like the, the international boogeyman and this is, you know, across the globe. Uh, I think it's true. Um, I think it's because it's the big unknown. Like nobody really knows how to handle the technology. Nobody really knows how it's going to impact the business. And nobody really knows for sure how it's going to take over the conference, the, the conferencing world or not, <laughs> as it were. Um, so I think that's why a lot of focus is being put on it. I don't think that we're uh, anywhere close to commercially being replaced by, by apps and we're just going to go hide somewhere in a basement. I don't think that's happening anytime soon. Um, I think a lot of the... I think you need, really need to separate the different 
use cases for RSI because as you've mentioned in the states it's a big big thing with language access so you know you might be at immigration you might be at the doctors you might be at I don't know registering at the city hall or whatever you do and there it's really a thing where it's a legal necessity or even in, in the UK you have the same thing um, so I think that's one thing and even there in Germany we're kind of slowly moving towards that mm. so for example when it comes to like doctor's visits like we already use RSI but it's very basic level interpreting it's kind of like does your arm hurt yes where here mm. does it hurt now yes okay so those kinds of you know use cases like yeah. <laughs> That is fine. That's totally okay. But I think where it gets more complicated and where I really don't think we're, we're, we're anywhere close to, at least me being where maybe I'm just being naive or too optimistic, is really just in the conferencing industry. I don't see a, a usable wholesale solution coming in anytime soon that would A, please all the clients and B, please all the interpreters. I mean, there's always going to be some some people who do anything. You know what I mean? Like You'll always find somebody willing to use a product if it's available and you will always be willing uh, you will always find somebody who's willing to work for someone if they offer them work that's always been the case in the history of mankind i guess or humankind sorry um but yeah i hear you a very long and rambling answer i'm sorry <laughs> the, con the conferencing market is 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 a tough one and i also think um uh, so what i used to do i'm not sure if that's it's if that's huge in europe but in in china it was very big at the time we or still is uh, we we like for investment firms we actually sent interpreters along with the client to like two or three day trips. So they like a big private equity fund would scope out potential partners in mainland China. And then the interpreter uh, would join them. And I mean, and those interpreters had to be phenomenal. I mean, not only interpreting, but also like, you know, the cultural element. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that was, uh, yeah, I don't see that uh, on an app. <laughs> <laughs> this is the um, I don't want to give away too much of the new book but the, this is one of the, the arguments that I've been making in quite a few places at the moment is that historically, I don't know I can't speak for translation technology but interpreting technology has historically over promised and under delivered oh, I like that phrase, we used that once with gadgets in an article, great yeah, yeah, yeah. it's true Yeah, it's so true by the time this goes live I've got a, a two page piece coming out in the ATA Chronicle having some fun with the way that machine interpreting has been marketed and it's not the same for remote simultaneous interpreting there are some very good very well thought out solutions there but the hysteria around the pr around remote simultaneous interpreting has been crazy at times and i think you're right i think it will create new markets i think it's likely to um, familiarize clients with what interpreting can do and it could actually create more conference work but i think it'll my argument has been for a while now, it really depends what interpreters do. And, you know, there is a scope in certain markets that interpreters just sit back passive and go, you know, bring me work or, you know, why should I be a consultant? The work just comes. That there are clients who would readily just snap up remote and suddenly they'll find that their work is remote. But the interpreters who are going to go to the trade shows, who are going to learn an industry, who are going to be able to go with the equity firm or... Um, I've I've done a, a multi-million pound business negotiation once where I flew out to, to somewhere and I was there just working through the negotiation with them and interpreting. That kind of stuff, there's power in having hired a physical interpreter that I don't think anyone's going to want to replace with an app because it changes the game. And I've, I've actually done two negotiations and in both of them, I realized at one point that I was there as much to, as much to, 
politically as I was to actually interpret, especially one where the company signed off on the deal at the end, the CEO of of this, the company who was selling goods and the buy the procurement guy from the company who were buying admitted at various points during the meeting that they understood French and English absolutely fine, but they decided not to do it in each other's language. Yeah. And I'm like, they're not getting an app to do that. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think maybe just for completeness sake, I think in the institutions, it's a little bit different because we have all this infrastructure in place you know the meeting rooms with the booths and you know a, a big a big group of of staff interpreters or freelance interpreters so i think the situation is a little bit different but what's certainly happening is is more i think what we call remote participation so people calling in from somewhere and the interpreters are still in the room so i think it's it's a it's a very different uh, very different situation i guess just to make um, to make a long story short yeah, and also at that point, it's so critical. I mean, you want to make sure you get the absolute best quality possible. I mean, yeah. people are deliberating about an entire continent where you are. So Yeah, plus you have stuff like <laughs> privacy well, and, you know, yeah. yeah, that kind of thing. So, yeah. But I also think it's being really over, what was it, over-promised and un under-delivered. promising and under-delivered. Yeah, but come on, cut, cut these companies a break. They're looking for funding, you know. That's what they, they do, yeah. And that's the thing. I think I think it's a very big topic at the moment because it's also very sexy. You know, you can sell it very easily and everybody immediately gets it. And I think with interpreting, it's even more immediate than with translation because with translation, like everybody can go on Google Translate, like they have a letter that they don't get. You just put it in there and you sort of kind of get what it means. And that's mm -hmm. why I think... I don't know if people, I'm kind of getting sidetracked here, but the, the, the point that I'm trying to make with um, interpreting is that everybody understands if you go somewhere and you have an app and you can immediately talk to the people in Hong Kong, in Shanghai, without any delay, without knowing the language, that's powerful. People get that. Whereas if you have a piece of written text, like they can sort of get around that. You know what I mean? Mm. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a very easy it's a, it's a very easy sell. And that's why a lot of those companies are so efficient in in their marketing and also in their their um, investment rounds. Yeah, yeah, and they, again, they have to. I mean, you can't if 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 you're if you're modest in your press release, that's yeah, of good. course, right. that's not that's never great. <laughs> so I don't think we should take everything. We should take everything they say with a grain of salt. I mean, oh yeah, that's yeah, that's what we're seeing at Slater as well. I mean, if yeah, you no, know, three years ago we were writing about like we're trying to cut out all the disruption and it's all new and i mean frankly in certain aspects i have to say though it has there, there has been a, a a leap i mean especially on the, i mean obviously on the machine translation side with all those neural systems uh, mm, right it's, it's a lot better i mean you know three of us here are native native german speakers and i mean that i mean Indeed. it went from like not being able to put you know, obviously not getting the you know the, the cases and, and and the verb at the end and all of that and we're, we're there now right i mean yeah. it's 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 much more the syntax is better, grammar is better. Um, you still need a human to look at it if if it's critical or high risk content, but it's it's gotten a lot better. So um, that's very true. They they have made some some of the some of the hype has materialized. Let's put it. Yeah. This way. yeah. So from a business perspective, in terms of RSI, do you see that there are a lot of big busts in the industry? Like, do you see a lot of those overhyped companies coming in hard, getting a ton of funding, and then they just kind of evaporate? Or do you see sort of more mergers and acquisitions? No, not yet. Not yet. No, I think, I mean, again, because what theirs is a, they, it's so clear that they're generating a new market, which is unusual. I mean, in translation, it's a little more complex to see how you're generating a new market just by being super cheap, right? Mm. Um, mm. In interpreting, you're actually creating new use cases in in an in a ma on a massive scale. If all of a sudden, for a fraction of the cost, 
and that does that that fraction of the cost doesn't have to be at the detriment of the linguist, right? I mean, you can still pay linguists the same amount of money, but you're cutting out all of the physical stuff around it. Right. That generates new markets where there were none before. I mean, you know, if if again, if I if I if I can afford it for Slatercon for three thousand dollars, great, I'll do it. If I have to pay twenty thousand dollars, I mean, that eats away my entire <laughs> my entire budget. I can't do it, right? So. So, so, so they have to be very active in marketing to actually make people aware that this is now an option, right? Mm -hmm. So no, you don't have to rely on the magic of a fully automated solution that, that just doesn't work and is embarrassing, right? But you don't have to actually put up a physical booth. So, so it is, in a sense, it's a much harder sales pitch because you're convincing people to do something they haven't done before. But that's right. the exciting part that's too, though. Right? Point, yeah. yeah, of course. So. But, but I think my question was really more getting at because you've been obviously observing like all the trends for I don't know how long this has been going on, like three, four, five years. Yeah. Have you seen a consolidation in the in remote interpreting? No, the opposite, right? Everybody's starting new. I have yeah, that, that's kind of how it feels. Yeah. No, no, there hasn't been any concept. There just there's new stuff in there. There's new companies in there. There's new funding. Uh, I, I haven't seen anybody go bust yet. So I think. Uh, I mean, like in a, in a, in in a ball of fire, right? right, that, right. That we noticed. I mean, maybe a couple of disappeared that we weren't aware of, but there hasn't been a major kind of a major uh, a major bankruptcy or anything like that. So, um, no, I think it's it's a it's a growing market. Because hmm. I think that the point when it gets really interesting, also maybe when we need to start taking it even more seriously, is when you start seeing um, more market consolidation and more mergers between the. You know, the different companies, just one company acquiring the other because of the technology that they have, because the customer base or whatever it may be. Because then I think that's that's then the point when they kind of have their ground level game figured out. And then it's really about honing the, the, the well, product quality in that instance is kind of the wrong term. But but you get what I'm saying. So I think that's I think really it's too early for that, though. Right? right, right. This is like they're not in the, the consolidation M&A phase that the translation industry is in. In the translation exactly. industry, you have those 20-year-old and increasingly gigantic companies that, you know, that have the capital and they can acquire competitors and get even bigger, right? So that there's a handful of super agencies in that uh, remote simultaneous market it's a new market. It wasn't there five years ago. So everybody's trying to grab the piece of the pie and, and yeah. grow the pie. Hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. so, uh, so there's no, M there's no, I guess, M&A there yet. It's just everybody trying to conquer it first, right? Mm. So if we say that, the, that in the translation space, this has taken about 20 years, give or take, um, I don't think it's going to take another 20 years in the interpreting market just because of the speed that the technology is evolving in and just because of the maturity of the overall language industry. But um, yeah, maybe like in the next five to 10 years, we would start to see some of that movement in the market. I don't know. No, it's 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 a good point. Look, I I don't think there's a clear winner yet. I mean, there's these yeah. big interpreting firms. I mean, there's on the one hand the OPI firms in the US, and then you have mm -hmm. some bigger players in in the UK and in, in Scandinavia that do kind of the. It's almost like a staffing uh, job, right? Or also OPI, um, and 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 they they take care of like the scheduling thing on mass, etc. Like with the traditional interpreters, mm -hmm. there's no clear big giant yet in the in the app RSI space at all. Right. Uh, so yeah, it's going to be interesting. Yeah, how it's going to be that. interesting. I mean, it's it's you know their their the race is on. So. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and I was gonna say just to move on to a slightly different subject. Uh -huh. um, how important would you say this kind of entrepreneurial 
corporate mindset is for individual freelancers, would you advise freelancers to think more like the entrepreneurs who are funding these new businesses or is there some other model that they should be looking at instead? Uh, I think they shouldn't focus. I mean, if it's not a passion, they shouldn't focus too much on the business side per se, because if you're a great translator or interpreter, you're going to get work eventually because, you know, they're always in demand. So do you need to be the best business person? Not really. You need to be the best translator or interpreter, because if you are the best translator or interpreter in your niche, you're going to get work. Uh, and then if you're a good business person, sooner or later, you're not going to be able to translate or interpret anymore because you've built something that will attract so much more work that you're going to have to farm it out, right? A lot of these translation companies started because like one overworked translator started farming out to his friends and colleagues and then like started to grow. And then he was just busy with all the financial and somebody just like, okay, okay, I'm going to be a manager now. So the business component, I mean, if you're, if you're a great linguist, translator, interpreter, I think you'll you'll be maxed out pretty soon, right? Yeah. On a day to day. So I think a lot of people will be very glad to hear that. So maybe the business component will come in if you really want to just do stuff that you love to do, right? So if you can really market yourself as, you know, in a particular niche as the single resource to go and you really don't want to touch that contract, you only want to do this particular like tech specialization, segment, yeah. Yeah, then then maybe you have to put a bit more work into into your own marketing. And if you're more business savvy then then it's easier, right? But uh, I mean, I, I just from personal experience, I know how hard it is to to find and then also uh, maintain and keep a good relationship with translators and interpreters. I mean, mm. my God, interpreters so many times. I'm like, please, can you please go there, please? <laughs> Are you saying we're difficult? The interpreter diva. I want you. The client doesn't want her. The client wants you. Okay. Wow. I am still waiting for those days to for those days to come in the non-London UK market. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> But I think this is probably historically why interpreters tend to gravitate towards certain cities because, you know, if that's where a lot of the market is, it's much easier to to attract work if you're in the middle of Brussels or Paris or somewhere else. Sure. Yeah. yeah. yeah I have a question. I, go ahead, Alex. No, because I was going to completely change gears. I don't know. Yeah, if me too. <laughs> All right. So you go first. Okay. Yeah, because um, I, I wanted to get to the SlaterCon uh, with oh, you. Oh, me too. A couple Good times. for you. Yeah. <laughs> so go ahead, Alex. You do that. No, because I'm I'm really curious because obviously you started SlaterCon, you obviously started expanding it, and um, I think it's just a really interesting transition to go from a an online business translation focused platform to do face to face events for industry insiders. And how did that come about? Like, why did you think that was a good idea to to expand in or no? I don't know if you know if it's an expansion, but to do these face-to-face um, events. It's very natural, Hello? actually. It's, a, it's, it's, it's kind of, if you look at the business media model, the, the two go hand in hand. Right. Um, if you have a successful publication, then you typically also try to do a conference. Or if you have a super successful conference, you try to do the publication. It's a very natural uh, uh, kind of, it complements each other very well. And, you know, SlaterCon, it's kind of modeled after a conference that I'd like to go to because I was sitting through so many, like, long and winding, like, oh, life yeah. science presentations. For, <laughs> Don't tell us about it. It's about this molecule. <laughs> Story why, of our lives. <laughs> why am I here? Why am I listening to this? Yeah. And then, um, and, and, and so and so we kind of try to keep it short in the afternoon or, you mm. know, we start at, like, 11 a.m. in the morning and keep with the presentations to 20 minutes. So no, basically from a business model perspective, it's very natural to do conferencing if you if you have a, a publication. Okay. Because also it gives us, you know, we were talking about how we source content. 
doing one SlaterCon gives us a ton of content yeah. and original nice. content and yeah. video and interviews and photos. That's right. Yeah. Which is fantastic. So for example, when we when we cover a lot of these companies now, I can actually add like the 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 the, the image we put in the article is is now quite often kind of an image we pull from SlaterCon. Like, hey, here's the CEO and you know, there's a Slater logo in the back and it's 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 the article's image. So that really helps. I imagine that this is maybe a little bit easier for you than, let's say, for a, a traditional uh, a traditional um, publication, because your company is still quite new. So you don't have that, you know, a lot of legacy when it comes to maybe even a paper publication. You started online. You've always been online, so maybe it's easier for you to adapt to uh, to these changes because there's a lot of a lot of stuff happening to to media and publishing at the moment, and some of the sort of more established companies seem to be having trouble to adapt to you know new business models and, and new events and the, the things that one has to do these days yeah that's correct i think it's obviously it's easier if you start in 2015 like we did and i mean the, the disruption in a sense in that space is, has already happened right so we we had to start from um from from that uh from that base that said though it's also amazing how easy it is to put some of these things together. I mean, 15 years ago, just coding our website would have cost a million dollars. Now it's so much easier, right? Um, so, so it's it's good and bad. And with with the media space, I think if you have expertise and, and content that that's you know not available anywhere else, I think it's still a, a valuable proposition. But maybe it doesn't maintain like a giant editorial staff in a skyscraper in in, in downtown somewhere. Those days are over. But yeah. Uh, but you, so you got to be a lot leaner. To, so you, to, you all work remotely. Just a quick question, or? Uh, well, I have an office, uh, and we have actually we have somebody in uh, in based in London, Esther. Esther, uh, yeah. She also is. She's she works out of an office. Um, like we don't actually we don't sit together. <laughs> Obviously, we have somebody in Manila, London, Singapore, uh, like Bangkok. Um, so so yeah, but it works well. Cool. So I I want to ask a kind of more controversial question about sleeper funds. <laughs> Ooh. See, that's the thing. They say it's my catchphrase, but I say it like once every three episodes. No, um, so I know you alluded to earlier the kind of vocal minority who are against agencies and see them as big evil, but there is some kind of discontent that this feeling that senior management of the big agencies don't understand freelancing, don't understand how freelancers work. Is there a risk that because SlaterCon, you have all these C-suite people speaking. Do you find is SlaterCon kind of making the gap between the C-suite and the freelancer wider, or are you not particularly concerned about whether freelancers would come or be able to speak or anything? No, it's a good question. Um, I think it's more a, a function of we. There's so many conferences that have um, they have linguists speak that are built around, uh, linguists and they have been around for a long time. So we kind of mm -hmm. had to carve our niche mm -hmm. and, and our niche was the C-suite and those topics and, and also putting, you know, big service buyers on stage. I mean, we had some of the largest service buyers in this industry present at SlaterCon. So it's, it's more kind of a, uh, a result of this rather than kind of a deliberate choice, like not to feature freelancers. And frankly, I mean, we're, we're looking, as we're looking to, we're going to do one in San Francisco. I, I'm, I'm actually thinking about having a panel with linguists. Um, I, I just really wanted to focus the business element for the first, what's been now, maybe nine Slater cons, 10 Slater cons, and, you know. Mm. I think if we if we had just done, in a quote-unquote, another translation conference, I think it, it would have failed. 
So we needed to be pretty unique to actually, the, the conferencing market is extremely competitive in this space. I mean, there's so many conferences. Um, so you, you got to set yourself apart a little bit. And I think it's getting the right people in the room as well, because I know freelancers who I would not allow in the same room as a, as a C-suite person. Um, <laughs> not, but, and, and yeah, I know others, and I think, well, actually, their experience and their point of view would be really useful. So, you know, there, there's a question of trust, and there's a question of alienation, and there's a question of, you know, are all of these technologies actually making it harder to find quality people because a lot of the really good people don't want to sit behind the platform. Um, I know I, I had a discussion with with my, one of my clients saying, you know, I'd love to work with you, but I don't want to be expected to sit on a platform bidding for jobs, especially not for interpreting jobs. That's just not on. Yeah. Uh, um, and there was an understanding, you know, the project manager said, we like working with you, we'll find a way. But I don't think the guys in the C-suite realized that you can actually destroy relationships if you're not careful and I think there's a discussion to be had about how agencies and freelancers relate to each other on a, a b2b level yeah but I, I would I think a fair amount of agencies probably do a good job and I mean they they should as they should because if you end up with a terrible reputation among linguists it's going to hurt your business as well so you better invest a little bit in in that in that component I mean they're an absolutely essential part of the business if not the essential part at the end of the day i mean if, if you know if you can't secure the right linguist then what are you going to do i mean then i mean then you're yeah you, you use the machine but that's not going to work yeah. long term so um so look i wouldn't i wouldn't i would love to have a controversial decision uh, sorry decision at the discussion with uh, at some point with linguists and c-suite I don't think it, it would be super controversial, though. I mean, I, I think those are kind of partners at some point in time. So, look, taking your input, um, I think I, we should probably do it at some point. Yeah, and, and maybe just to later. to connect here, um, I think the next Slater kind of that's coming up is in London in May. Can you share something what's going to happen already, or is it top secret? No, no, it's not. <laughs> it shouldn't be. Uh, yeah, I'm a little late with all the uh, the agenda as usual. No, but it's it's going to be a great one again. So we're going to have uh, it's May sixteenth, just off Hyde Park, fantastic location, mm. and uh, we're going to have uh, two CEOs: uh, the CEO of uh, Limebridge, John Fennelly, and the CEO of uh, We Localize, uh, 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 Smith Ewell. We're going to have somebody from. Uh, Atlassian, a big software um, company out of Australia, and she's in the localization there. We have somebody from Life Sciences, and then we have a media localization panel. So media localization is something that uh, has been growing super fast because of Netflix and all these uh, over-the-top providers. So all the, the whole subtitling and uh, and dubbing market, I mean, talking about disruption and, and new ways of working, that market has undergone a tremendous change over the past five years. You know, it was kind of a uh, somewhat maybe a little bit sleepy part of the industry. I mean, you know, dubbing, subtitling, and then Netflix and all the streaming comes along and it just explodes. And um, uh, and there you also have new cloud solutions. So it's a pretty interesting space to talk about. So we're going to have a panel on that. Yeah. That's great. All crammed into one afternoon. <laughs> yeah, that's what I that's what I noticed. Though it's fairly sort of, sorry, fairly um, short and intense, but that's intentional, I suppose. Because no, people are busy. And, also, yeah. if people are busy, and you know, you get the C suite by doing it so they can fly in and out the same day. Right. Uh, yeah. We actually have a fair amount of people that really do this. Uh, like last time in Zurich, probably half of the people just flew in and out the same day. Right. Uh, mm. Because if you want to, if you want to keep these people for three days, you're going to have to put on a giant show and and have. 
gazillion clients there. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. so that's a different. So you get the networking and business development in as well. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, no you know, we, we do this in one afternoon. You get a lot done. You get a yeah. lot done. You meet a lot of people, and uh, I think the presentations are interesting as well. So mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> you guess? No, I, they are. I mean, and and it's one of the few conferences where everybody actually sits in the room and listens to the presentation when it's going on is it something that happens in the background and everybody stays out and drinks coffee and networks mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah exactly we're there right so we're true. <laughs> yeah um so may- maybe mo- moving towards the end I-, I-, I wanted to put you on the spot a little bit and wondering i mean you 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 have done some uh interpreting coverage in in the past and we, we were fortunate enough to contribute to that a little bit so i'm wondering if you if you plan on extending uh that coverage at all and into what kind of specific direction it, it may be moving Good question. Um, I think there we're depending a little bit on what we call the news flow, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there's we do love to cover all those RSI startups as they get the money and get funded, right? Mm-hmm. And if there's another round of funding, like in that space, we're obviously gonna gonna look into it. Uh, there might be stories coming out of the U.S. I mean, there's some talk that like language access is in danger because of you know Trump could like literally just stop it by the stroke of a pen there was a story recently oh my god yeah um i mean i'm not saying this is going to happen but it's just this is an interesting uh, market as well um there i think probably from a ratio point of view we're going to keep it as it is now i know that's probably not enough for you <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> the uh the the translation side of it is just so vast and, and complex and fast moving so we want to keep covering that pretty intensely as well um yeah I'm not sure I answer your question. So I don't have a strategic plan. Let, let me put it this way. Okay, I don't have a strategic yeah. <laughs> plan to cover interpretation. What we should do, though, is we should write a research report about interpretation. Like mm. we've done all these verticals like games and finance and, 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 and media. We should probably do something on interpretation, a deeper dive, and we'll reach out. And the research reports are basically in-depth sort of publications that sort of yeah. get, also provide additional income for you, but go yeah, much deeper yeah, than yeah. the day-to-day coverage. Mm. Yeah, we need some money. So uh, those, <laughs> <laughs> we all. those we sell, I mean, it's still it's still extremely affordable, obviously. Most of them sell for like $85, and we have some for like 380 when it's, you know, M&A reports with pretty exclusive data and things like that. Um, so those are like 20, 30, 40-page, you know, reports that you can download. Yeah, and I've seen... Uh, I'm really glad to see Slater doing good methodology. I've got a PhD in interpreting studies, and there, there was a, a fairly recent research report that I pointed out the flaws of because they completely missed the uh, they, they completely missed a, a section of the market, which arguably would have changed their results. And I think with interpreting, especially, it's the not it's the not ignoring the the freelancers and the smaller suppliers is going to be key to to figure out what's actually going on in the market. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, methodology. Yeah, I, I know. It's, it's, I'm a methods it's geek. Hard. Sorry. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you know. I'll let you proofread our next report. <laughs> <laughs> you just got yourself more work there, Jonathan. <laughs> Boom! Here is twenty pages. Please, I need it back tomorrow. We, I, I have literally just finished. Um, we, we've just done the, the final draft of our methodology. A letter to the editor for a, a, a paper that came out in a medical journal that completely doesn't understand interpreting or translation at all. And it's like, how do we get all this criticism into 400 words? It's kind of shrinking it more and more and more and more. Yeah. Nice. Great. 
Well, listen, Florian, this has been extremely interesting. So uh, thanks for taking so much time out of your day. And it's quite late <laughs> here in, in Central no Europe. <laughs> so thank you for taking the time. Maybe we can uh, maybe can let you uh, plug something before we before we clear out. I mean, for those people who don't know, it's everything is on Slater.com. But I think you just started something new, right? The Slater Sweep? Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, we uh, I, I don't. I don't think people really understand that one yet. Um, but here's your chance to explain it. <laughs> here's my chance to explain it. Look, so we're. Um, I, I just talked about that funnel that we're we're using to uh, to create the editorial content. So so basically, this is this is part of the funnel we're passing on to readers. So you can subscribe to that, and you get a daily email uh, where basically it links not to Slater content, but to just all the relevant story of the day that have any connection to this industry. So it's it's pretty. It's a sweep. Uh, so it's probably five, 10, 20 stories a day that you get. And I mean, it's it's curated, but we don't provide any additional commentary or anything like that to mm -hmm. it. So um, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's it's like a super highly curated uh, um, industry feed. One final, final question, which we should have asked at the very beginning is, because where, where does the name Slater come from? Translator. Oh, it's translator. It's just a brief. It's just from translator. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm not a creative person, so I sourced this on Odesk. <laughs> that person came back with about 10 suggestions. Nine of them were atrocious, but then Slater, I'm like, that's a good name. Short and sweet. The domain was not available, but it took me it took me just about two weeks and some fighting and investment to get it. Uh, it's a nice, a nice, what is it, six-letter domain, .com? That's great. Right. I have been called an interpreter, so I am waiting for interpreter.com to go somewhere. You should do that. You should buy that. So terp.com is actually for sale starting at 999 euros. <laughs> Really? Me buying tomorrow? Wow.